I want you to imagine with me for a second that it's it's 6 a.m. and you're waking up excited. Now, now some of you are already thinking that's a fairy tale, but roll with me here. 6 a.m. and you wake up excited and you gather the family and you hit the road and you, you get on your way and you get to where you're going to and there's a big crowd of people. They're all coming to the same thing. And you, you make your way up to the venue uh, and I guess you should have woken up earlier because you, you don't get to sit in the front. You get the, the back seats. You got to sit in the lawn section. So you, so you settle down in the grass. But even though you're far back, you can hear the speaker perfectly. And let me tell you, they, they're amazing. You've never heard someone speak like this before, but you start to check your itinerary because they're not really saying what you expected. Uh, as far as it relates to you, you were kind of expecting to hear how you're going to have your best life now type of speech, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying things that are a little confusing and, and almost negative, and you kind of almost feel preached at by the end of it. But even in the midst of all that, you come out with a sense of, a purpose and, and meaning. And as it relates to the speaker themselves, you were expecting them to really talk mostly about themselves and how they're going to take office and beat the competition and bring about all these things that you're waiting for. But instead, during the whole speech, they really are focusing on, on you and how you're going to help bring all these things about. Have you figured out where you are yet? Or when you are? Uh, it's not a presidential campaign, and it's not even from this first century. It's 2,000 years ago and you've just been up on the mountain to hear Jesus give his famous sermon on the mount. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on a small section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us about being salt and light. I think. There we go. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 is what we'll be looking at this morning. And what we're going to find is that Jesus, in, in these few words, six sentences, is going to answer three questions for us, three of the most important questions that have ever been asked. Everyone who's ever walked the earth have asked these questions, whether spoken or unspoken. The first is, who am I? A question of identity. The second, why am I here? A question of purpose. And the third, how should I live? A question of conduct. And Jesus is going to answer all of those questions for us this morning. You don't need Aristotle or Plato. Jesus is not going to leave any questions about that. Before we jump into the text, I want to talk about the context just a little bit. How did we get up on the mountain? How did Jesus get to the sermon? His public ministry has started now in Matthew's Gospel, and it's been pretty low-key up to this point. He's just been preaching in synagogues, but now crowds are gathering to hear him. And so he goes up on a mountain to speak to this great crowd. And if you were a, an Israelite, a Jew that day up on the mountain, you were expecting something different because the message that Jesus was preaching was about a kingdom. The gospel about the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom. And right now, if you're an Israelite, you don't have a kingdom. The Romans are ruling over you. So you're expecting your king to overthrow Rome and to be a political and physical ruler, take the throne in Jerusalem. But Jesus begins his sermon, and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit that kind of king. Because he starts out with what we call the Beatitudes that characterize people in his kingdom. And he says the people that are going to be blessed in his kingdom are going to be those that, that mourn. And, and that are poor in spirit and in hungry for righteousness. It almost doesn't make any sense. And after hearing the Beatitudes, you might be thinking, this is going to be a kingdom just completely apart from the world. This has nothing to do with this world. But Jesus doesn't leave that option for us. Because with this next section, he tells us of how, although we're not to be of the world, we must be in the world. And so in 13 through 16, we're going to read about how we are supposed to be salt and light to the world, and it's going to answer those three questions for us. Why am I here? 
who I am, why am I here, and how should I live? Let's begin in verse 13. But before we do that, just real quickly, one, one more thing about context. You probably have a header above verse 13 that says salt and light. Uh, I want to suggest to you that really the break should come just before verse 11, and here's why. In the Beatitudes, you'll notice that Jesus talks about blessed are the poor, blessed are those are more, blessed are the meek. But you get to verse 11, and it says, blessed are you. He changes to the first person. And he's going to continue that throughout verse 16. And here's why that's important. Because everything we talk about in relation to salt and light this morning is in the immediate context of verse 11 and 12, where he talks about being persecuted and reviled. So what Jesus is doing is not leaving us any option of saying, well, I don't want to be salt and light today. Because it's not going to be easy. It's in the context of, as Christians, as disciples, we will face persecution. Let's, let's begin in our text, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I've deemed this the original commission. Uh, that's from the book of Jansen. You won't find that anywhere. Uh, but but in, in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out his apostles to just the Jewish nation, we usually call that the limited commission. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus sends out his apostles to the whole world, we usually call that the great commission. But this is really kind of the first commission to go out to the world. So I'm calling it the original commission. And again, it's going to answer these three questions for us. The first question that Jesus begins to answer is, who am I? And he does that with two different pictures. The first is salt, which might seem a little weird at first. The, the, the answer to the great question of who am I is salt. Seems a little weird, but, but let's understand what Jesus is talking about here and specifically what they would have heard that day. Now, the Israelites would have been very familiar with salt. They used it for many different things. And if you've ever heard a sermon or read a commentary on what Jesus meant by salt, you've probably heard like 20 different options. Luckily, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us exactly what he's talking about in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its haste. Jesus is talking about the aspect of salt, of how it flavors things, of how it's tasteful. And luckily, we use salt the very same way today. We put salt on everything, on fries, on pizza, on cereal. I mean, we salt it all, right? We use salt for all kinds of food. And if you cook food, I mean, can you imagine cooking food without salt? It's almost impossible. Like, that, that's our main flavoring agent. We use salt just like they used it. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting, is that as his disciples, we are flavor for a flavorless world. We are a force of good in the world, and that affects our influence in the world. But he also gives us a negative picture to this, because he says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And now the chemists out there are getting really nervous because they're thinking, wait a second, Jesus. NACL, table salt, is a stable compound. It doesn't become not salt. Like if you put salt on the shelf 100 years later, it's still going to be salt. So, so what's he talking about? Was he, was he mistaken? Again, put yourself in the shoes of the hearers that day. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because their salt was not pure like our salt today. It was a mixture of different things. And the salt that was in that mixture was usually the most soluble. So if the environmental conditions were not just right, what could happen is the salt would leach out of that mixture or evaporate out. So when you go to use your salt mixture, it's not really salty anymore. So what would they do? They would throw it on the road to be trampled under people's feet. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. 
And so what's the picture? What's, what's the, the lesson for us? Is that we are not supposed to be contaminated by the world. We are supposed to be pure salt. We are supposed to be different. We cannot have influence on the world if the world is influencing us. For us to flavor the world, we cannot be like the world. It's very tempting for us to want to fit in to our society, to fit in to our culture today, but Jesus is not calling us to that. He's saying us as disciples, we actually don't fit in. We are different and distinct. We are salt. The second picture that he uses is is light. And again, the Israelites would have recognized that the picture of light, they, they use lights just like we use lights today, and he's going to use a different uh, a couple different images to show that, a city and a lamp. Uh, but, but when they heard the analogy of light, there would have been a few specific things that I think would have come to their mind. Number one, they would have viewed the law, the commandments of Moses as light. We read Psalm 119, there's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. They would have seen the law as light. They didn't view it as like tax laws. The light was good, or the, the law was good. It was light. But also the, the rabbis that taught the law would have been referenced to as lights because they taught the law, which is light. And also the temple would have been referenced to as light because there's priests that are following the commandments of the law in the temple. So notice what's happening here. In their minds, light is all these grandiose things. Moses, they gave the commandments and these rabbis and this temple with the priest. But you see what Jesus is doing? He's looking at this little group of poor Jews. And he says, you are the light. You are the light. He's empowering them. And again, he gives two different images to show that, kind of in negative aspects. First, he talks about a city set upon a hill. Uh, it, likely, when Jesus gave the sermon, there was one city that they could see across the sea, uh, the city of Susita, which would have been a great city up on a hill. Not that there's anything important about the city, but they would have got the image. Also, he might have been talking about the great city, Jerusalem, that, of course, also sat on a hill. What you might not know is that during that time period, great cities like that would have been lit at night. They would have had lamps to light the city, and that would have been to, to bring travelers in and keep robbers away. But the picture that Jesus is giving is that you have a great city up on a hill at night that is lit, and you can see it from miles away. There's no missing it. And then he gives the picture of a little lamp. You've probably seen a, a picture of the little lamp that they would use during the day, a little oil lamp. Uh, and most of their homes are one-room homes. So just that little lamp on that little stand could give light to the whole house. And then he gives these almost humorous ideas with these pictures because he says, look, you can't, you can't hide that city that's up on the hill. That's not what it's made for. It's not made to be hidden. And when you light a lamp, you don't put a basket over it. That completely defeats the purpose of it. And that's exactly the point of what Jesus is telling us. We are light. That, that's who we are. And we are not made to be hidden. We are made to be lights in the world, to be seen by all. Notice that he gives a picture of a city where the whole community can see it, and a picture of a lamp and a house where, where just the family can see it. We're supposed to be lights all the time in our community, at work, at home, when we're just with our spouse, just with our kids. We are lights all the time because that's who we are. And notice he says it gives light to all in the house. We are lights to all people all the time. We don't get to turn the light off. We don't get to turn the light off in the break room at work. We don't get to turn the light off at school. We don't get to turn the light off when it's, it's the holidays and we're just going to be around the family for a few days, so we'll just kind of lay low. We are lights. That's who we are. We are salt and we are light. And really, all of this is just commentary on the very first chapter of your Bible. Because in Genesis 1, we are told that we were made in the image of God. We are image bearers for God. 
Now, Jesus never specifically connects himself to Saul. He doesn't describe himself as Saul. But we know anything he told his disciples to be, he is. And of course, he does tell us that he is light. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. So what Jesus is showing us is that we are supposed to be like him. We are image bearers of Jesus. We are image bearers of God. Some people have gave this picture for the light analogy, that, that Jesus is the sun, S-U-N, and we are the moon, and we reflect his light. I like that. I also think about when I was a kid, I had little glow-in-the-dark toys. Uh, and how did you get those things to glow at night? Uh, you, you put them outside in the sunlight, and they, it charged them up. And then when they were all soaked up with the sun, you put them in the dark, and they, and they glowed really bright. And that's exactly the picture that Jesus gives us. We're supposed to reflect his light. We're supposed to be like him. So we are image bearers of God, we are salt, and we are light. All that is about being distinct and different. But why? What's the pur- that's who we are, but what is the purpose of that? Well, he answers that question next in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your purpose, the reason why you are walking this earth, is to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's your purpose. We don't use the word glorify that much in our common vernacular outside of a biblical context. The, the Greek word there is doxazo. It just means to praise or to honor. If we sing a doxology today, that's, that's a song or a hymn of praise or honor. So our purpose is to praise and to honor our God and to help other people praise and honor our God. That's our purpose. I think we see three points from this, this verse 16 here. Number one, the purpose is not for our glory. We are not salt and light so that people can see us, so people can praise us, so people can give us the glory. That's not the idea at all. In fact, Jesus is going to speak on this in the very next chapter. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, don't be salt and light so people will look at you and see you and glorify you. And he gives three different pictures to show that. He says, don't pray out in public this eloquent prayer so people can see you. No, pray in secret. You'll be rewarded. He says, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet so everyone can see how great you are. No, do that in secret and then you'll be rewarded. And when you fast, don't disfigure your face and make everyone think you're so pious. Just, just be normal and you will be rewarded in secret. The idea is that we are not getting the glory. Brother Ricky said so well a few weeks ago that, that we don't make posts on Facebook. We, we don't post scriptures and do things in public to be seen by others for our glory. It's for God's glory. It's all for His glory. It's not about us. Two, our purpose is sounding God. Now, that's, that seems pretty basic. It's Sunday morning where we're Christians meeting together, but I think it's really easy actually to lose sight of this truth. Think with me for a second. When you meet somebody new they've never met before, and they came up to you, and they ask you, what do you do? What are they asking? They're asking what your job is what your occupation is. And so suddenly what our culture has done is it's, it's characterized our purpose by our job and our occupation. I don't think I'm being an extremist with this idea. Think about this as well. When we talk about someone that's either died or in history or just somebody that we're describing that someone else doesn't know, usually when we begin to talk about them, well, so-and-so was, we say their profession, right? They were a doctor or a factory worker or a stay-at-home mom. That tends to be the first thing we think of when we think about someone's purpose. Another way, another thing we tie our purpose to is talent and passions. Have you ever heard someone say, that person was made to be an artist? Or that person was 
made to be a basketball player or that person was made to be an architect. They're so good at a specific set of skills, a certain physical task that we think that is, that's what they were made for. They were perfect for that. If you're familiar with the, the swimmer, Michael Phelps, uh, he, he's the greatest Olympic swimmer ever. He's the greatest Olympian ever, actually, the most decorated. 23 gold medals, I think. Next closest is like nine. Uh, not even close. Now, if you would have followed his career early on in the 2000s, you would have heard commentators talk about how Michael Phelps was made to swim from a physical standpoint. First off, he was really tall, and that's good for swimming. You don't see a lot of short guys out there swimming. Uh, not only was he tall, but he had a, a, a short or a long torso and short legs, which is good for swimming. And he had a really long wingspan, which is good for swimming, and a really big lung capacity, which is good for swimming. And he was really flexible, which is all good for swimming. And so they would say that Michael Phelps was made to swim. I have news for you this morning. Michael Phelps was not made to swim. Michael Phelps was made to glorify his father, who is in heaven. And that's our purpose, too. You were not made to play an instrument. You were not made to play a sport. You were not made to crunch numbers. You were not made to give financial or business advice. You were not made to heal the human body. You were not made to make people feel good. You were made for something so much greater than that. You were made to glorify your Father, who is in heaven. That's our purpose. That's our influence. Not only that, the the last thing that this shows us, and really the thrust of verse 16, is that our purpose involves other people. Read it again with me. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. Really, the, the aspect of us glorifying the Father is just assumed in this verse. The whole concentration of verse 16 is that we allow other people to glorify the Father. I want you to think back with me to the aftermath of COVID-19, of the pandemic. I think with any great event like that, uh, th- th- there's still some good that can come from that. And I think we witnessed that. Because I'm sure here, just like we did in Arkansas, there was a long amount of time where you did not meet together as one. Uh, and that was awful. Man, I, I don't ever want to do that again. But when you came back together for the first time as Christians, wherever you were at, whether you're here at Campbell Road or elsewhere, didn't that do something for you? I hope it did. Didn't that help you appreciate just what a blessing it is to meet with other brothers and sisters in Christ? So I think from that aspect, we can see how that the, the pandemic actually did good for us as a group of Christians. However, I think there is a strong case to be made that there was a negative effect with Christians in the world. After COVID-19, it is easier than ever for us to be separate from the world. More companies have went remote than ever. The companies that never dreamed of having employees at home uh, that, that are now indefinitely going to be at home. And, and while you were going through all of that during COVID-19, whether you were going to go back or not go back, there were some of you that were probably like, I, I can't wait to get back to the office. I mean, I'm just a people person. or I'm sick of my kid knocking on my door all day. Get me out of here. I just want to get back to the office. But some of you maybe were thinking, ah, I love this home gig because now I can finally do my job like I'm supposed to. I'm not around all those crazy people anymore. Or maybe you thought, finally, I can serve the Lord like I'm supposed to because I don't have the influence of all those sinful people around me anymore. Finally, I'm safe at home. And all of a sudden, we forget our purpose. It's not about us being safe from the world. It's about us saving them. 
Our purpose is to help others glorify the Father. That's who we are. We help them glorify our Father. Think back to the mountain scene with me for a second. Jesus gave those words about salt and light, and he was speaking to a little crowd on a mountain. But while he was doing that, he was thinking about the world. He was speaking to that crowd, but he was thinking about the world that was not on that mountain, all the lost that were not on that mountain, all the world that was in darkness, because he said, you are the salt of the earth, the earth. And he said, you are the light of the world. He was thinking about the world. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have to be thinking about. You're going to walk out of here today, this week. You're going to walk by people on the street. You're going to walk by people at work, at the game, at the grocery store, at school. They're living in darkness. And they need our help. The world needs us. You're going to see someone, and you are the light. Not the person sitting next to you. You are the light. Not the preacher. You are the light. Not your spouse. You are their light. And they need us, brothers and sisters. They need us. And we can do it. We, we can be the lights that Jesus told us to be. If Jesus could leave heaven we can leave our living room. And if the disciples could leave the mountain that day as lights, we can leave this building as lights. They need us to do that. That is our purpose. That's who we are, and that's our purpose, to glorify the Father. The final question we have is, how should I live? And Jesus also answered that in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. How are we supposed to be salt and light? We're supposed to live by good works. Well, what good works, Jansen? Well, luckily, Jesus didn't just say this and not describe that for us. I mentioned earlier how 11 through 16 is kind of a hinge in the sermon, and everything that comes before and after shows us what salt and light looks like. The Beatitudes show us the character of salt and light, and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount shows us how to live in good works and be salt and and light, how to live righteously. Now, don't get nervous. We're not about to go and flush out the entire Sermon on the Mount. But I do want to think about some things that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light, how we live righteous lives. And let me suggest to you that these good works were radical. This was not just about sending cards and giving flowers. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do. It absolutely is. We need that. But Jesus talked about some really hard things on the mountain that day. He talked about anger. He talked about how we're not only supposed to refrain from murdering people, we're not supposed to have murderous thoughts. We're not supposed to have angry thoughts or have anger in our heart. So when other people are bursting out in anger against the boss, against their family, against the coworker, against the referee, against the person that cut them off in the street, we don't join in on that. We don't even have a disposition of that kind of anger. We are different. That sounds like something separate from the world. That sounds like salt and light. Jesus also talked about lust, about how we're not only not supposed to commit adultery and be faithful, that we aren't supposed to look at other people with lustful intent. And here our culture stands from a place of nobility and high morality when they say, well, I'll just look and not touch. No, 
That is not what Jesus Christ taught. But look what they're wearing. You are supposed to be salt. And you are supposed to be light. We don't even have lustful eyes or lustful thoughts. We are different from the world. It sounds like salt and light. Jesus talked about O's, about our yes being our yes and our no being our no. So when we say we're going to do something in the home, we do it. And when we say we're going to do something in the congregation, we do it. When we say we're going to do something at school, we do it. When we say we're going to be somewhere, we're there. That's different from the world. That sounds like salt and light. Jesus also talked about giving the poor. When a Christian has an excess of funds, has extra money laying around, gets the bonus, the first thing that they think about is not jumping on Facebook Marketplace and finding the best deal on the wish list that they've accumulated for the last week or month or year. They think about who is in need. They think about giving that money. That's different from the world. That sounds like salt and light. Maybe the toughest words that Jesus talked about on the mountain that day was how we are supposed to love our enemies. Love our enemies and pray for them. When the boss has done you wrong and everyone else sees that he's done you wrong, they have done you wrong, and they ask, what are you going to do? How are you going to get back at him? How are you going to make this right? You say, I'm not. I'm not. I'm praying for them. And when everyone else is tearing down the president, regardless of your opinion, even if you see them as an enemy, when they're making posts and texting and saying things in conversations, you do not join in. Instead, you're, you're praying for them. You're, you pray even for your enemies. And when someone does wrong against your child, you don't cut them off forever. You, you love them. That, that is different from the world. That is salt and light living. That is what Jesus is calling us to. That is the influence we're supposed to have in the world. The opportunities to be salt and light are all around us. One awkward moment, one moment of courage could change someone's eternity. And, and that's, our, that's our job. That's who we are. We are salt and we are light. Just like a little pinch of salt can make a difference to flavor. And just like a little light can make a difference in a room that can make such a difference on a community. Just, just a little pinch of, of Christians, let's say three or four hundred, can make a difference in a community, let's say the size of Garland, Texas. That's who we are supposed to be, salt and light. In just six sentences, Jesus talked about who we are, why we're here, and how we are supposed to live. And if we understand that, we will just naturally, just like salt is naturally flavorful and light naturally illuminates, we will naturally have the influence on the world we are supposed to have. I want you to think with me in closing, again, just about that mountain scene. If you were there that morning, that day, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, and you were sitting at Jesus' feet, and he looked right at you, and he said, you are salt. You are light. Can you imagine? He's saying that to you this morning. He's saying to you, you are salt and you are light. 
He didn't say it because it was going to be really easy, be salt and light. Remember, this is in the context of persecution. We aren't salt and light because it's so easy to be salt and light. We are salt and light because we love those people who are in the dark. And Jesus didn't give us this commandment without showing us exactly how to do it. Because Jesus loved those in the dark. He came to earth, and his own people rejected him. They belittled him, and they drove him away, and they beat him, and they, they killed him. They killed him. But not even that, not even that was enough to stop the love of Jesus. He truly was the light of the world. Nothing could stop Jesus from pursuing his people. And so the question for us this morning is what is stopping us from pursuing his people? We are salt. And we are light. There's no room for thinking we aren't good enough, we don't have enough influence, we don't know enough. Jesus is good enough. Show the world Jesus, and you will be salt, and you will be light. Thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.